Well, it's good to be back. See you guys. Sorry I missed last week. I was out of town. Um, I trust that you now see why Michael handled the sons of God, daughters of men, and Nephilim, and not me. Tricky little passage. I assume he did what only he does. Handled it pretty well. Um, This morning, we are going to continue... Uh, in our series of the gospel in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we are going to continue looking at the gospel in the flood account. And uh, this morning, our time will overlap a little bit of what Michael did last week. And next week, he will wrap up the flood with chapter 8. And what he does next week might overlap a little bit of what I'm doing this week. So... There will just be a little bit of this happening, but hopefully there will be enough differences that um, you guys will be able to track with us and you'll understand um, why we're doing it this way. So as I said this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 6, and we're going to look at the gospel in the flood. And there are going to be two main points that I want to highlight for us this morning, or two main themes, if you will. The first is going to be that the flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again judge the world for sin. The flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again judge the world for sin. And we're going to have five points that I'm going to focus on underneath that. Our second section is going to be that the flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again redeem through one man. The flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again redeem through one man. That's going to have about four sections um, below it. So this morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the details of the ark itself. If any of you are curious about that, you know, we've got a pretty good rendition about three hours away. So you can go down there and check it out or give Kimberly a call and I'm sure she can tell you everything you need to know about the details of the construction of the ark. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the species either, and the animals. Um, Same kind of thing. What we're going to spend some time on this morning is what I call a motif. You know what I mean when I say a motif? The the definition of motif uh, says that it would be a distinctive feature or dominant idea in an artistic or literary composition. We employ motifs in architecture all the time. In other words, a repeating design or a repeating pattern or a repeating theme of some sort that shows up in multiple places in maybe a building or a house. Um, Some of you know our neighborhood as an example. Rush Creek Village um, as a whole has a particular motif of organic slash Usonian architecture. But even more specifically, there are houses, individual houses in our neighborhood that, that might employ their own unique motif. We have a roundhouse. It's perfectly circular. And everything in that house has a round motif. You go outside and there are, there are stones that are circular and round on the patio. We have a triangle house. If you look at it in plan, it's a bunch of triangles interlaced and juxtaposed upon each other. And there are corners in that house that come to points like this. So you have a triangular motif in the triangle house. And so this morning, I would propose or submit that what we see in the flood is a couple of recurring themes and motifs that we see throughout Scripture. And the first is that you know, God cannot tolerate sin, and God must judge sin. That is a motif that we see throughout Scripture, and we see it repeated in the Word of God in various ways. The second would be that Noah himself, and by extension the ark, serve as a motif of Christ himself. Now, Noah is not the Messiah. Noah is not the Son of God. But he might represent a motif, a Christ-like motif. We have other examples in Scripture as well. Think about um, Moses operates as a motif of Christ. Uh, David and others. We'll probably come back to that a little later on. So that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see these parallels to the Gospel as we begin to look at the flood. So if you would, um, 
Chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 5, and I'm going to read uh, most of this, and just bear with me for a moment, and then we'll come back and dissect some of this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, as I read through this, I want you to think about and notice how many times God, through Moses, uses the word earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Hem, Shem, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and beheld it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Jump down to verse 17. And behold, I, even I, bring the flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under the heavens. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Anybody know the name of Noah's wife? It's Joan. Joan of Ark. Um, Okay, chapter 7. Matt, Matt is uh, interceding on my behalf for me. Thank you. Okay. Ver, uh, chapter 7, verse... <laughs> Nick is just like shaking his head. <laughs> then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Jump over. Uh, the end of verse 3. The earth. Verse 4. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living creature, every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse six. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the <laughs> when the flood of water came upon the earth. Jump down to verse ten. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Verse twelve. And the rain fell upon the earth. Verse fourteen. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind. Jump down to verse 17. The flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Um, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered and all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Jump down to verse 23. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So the first point that I want to highlight for us. Sin clearly affects the whole earth and God's judgment includes the whole earth. Now think about that. Earth is mentioned... 24 times in 42 verses, according to my calculations. So God is clearly revealing the gravity of sin and its impact on all of his creation. God is clearly driving home and reinforcing how sin infects, affects, and permeates everything. It does it in our own lives. And it does it to the whole earth. It impacts his entire creation so much 
that he realizes that he has to wipe this out. And he will do it again. We'll come back to this a little bit later, but he will once again judge the earth for sin. Jump over to Exodus chapter 12 with me. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at two sections in chapter 12. The first is going to be verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this and then come back and we'll talk about this for a moment. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now watch this. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Jump over to verse 14 for a moment. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Jump down to verse 20. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now some of you are like... Why did we just go and read those two passages? I believe those represent two examples of what we see happening in Genesis with sin and with the corruption of mankind. Throughout Scripture, throughout the Word of God, yeast and leaven is symbolic of sin. How many of you are in the culinary arts and know that you can just take a little bit of yeast, apply it to a lump, and it affects the whole lump? And it doesn't take very much, does it? Just a little bit can have a big impact on that lump of dough. And so when God was instructing them to partake and only partake of unleavened bread for a period... It was symbolic and it foreshadowed and it represented and throughout scripture it reminds us that just a little bit of yeast can in fact affect the whole. Just a little bit of sin in the community affects the whole. It happens very, very easily. My family will tell you I'm a germaphobe at times. Not in a classic sense, you know, carrying a handkerchief and grabbing door handles, but I won't eat after any of them. You know, Susan will say, well, there's a half a sandwich in the refrigerator when you get home if you want it, and I'll go in there and I'll look at that. Now, if it's been cut, I'll eat it. If it has bite marks up to the halfway point, nope. <laughs> it's off limits. I am not sharing germs. They will all tell you that. The second thing I want us to look at for a moment, when we think about the flood, and we think about God repeating the idea that the entire earth needed to be destroyed, to, to be wiped out, That everything that had breath in it, except that which was on the ark, had to be wiped out completely. Is a real image of the gravity and the weight of sin. And I don't know that that necessarily impacts our hearts the way it should all the time, myself included. 
When we read here about the unblemished lamb, the instructions to the community were to take an unblemished lamb, perfect, spotless, a year or younger in age, and you were to bring it to the house, and I don't know if tradition meant literally inside the house in the dwelling, but you were to take it from the flock, okay, on the tenth day, and you were to keep it close for four days until the fourteenth day when it would be slaughtered in front of the entire community. Now, families, think about what it might have implied or what might have happened by taking this lamb from out of the flock, bringing it closer to the house, whether that meant inside or not, probably not, but close, because the instruction in verse 6 is you need to care for this thing and make sure that nothing happens to it over those four days. It was unblemished when you procured it from the flock. It needs to remain unblemished until it is sacrificed on that fourth night. Now, kids, lambs are cute. Lambs are cute. And they're soft. And they're cuddly. They're innocent. They need help. You might get to know that lamb a little better than when it was out in the flock, in the pasture. You might even nickname or name that lamb. And then all of a sudden, on the fourth day, dad and mom start leading that lamb to the altar. And of course, there wasn't really an altar at that time. There was no Levitical priesthood had been set up or anything like that. This was in the households and it was to be slaughtered in front of the entire community. Now think about the impact. Think about the imagery and think about what that says to those kids, what that says to those parents, when that unblemished, innocent, spotless lamb gets sacrificed as a means of atonement for your sin and my sin. All of creation, save what was on the ark, got wiped out because of sin. I wonder if maybe sometimes we could have maybe a more sobering understanding or perspective on the sin in our lives, the effect that it has on others, and, of course, on the world at large. So the second thing I want us to look at for a moment is that through the judgment of the world via the flood, we see God's omniscience revealed. Look at verse 5. I'm still in Exodus. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only God can judge our hearts. I talked about this quite a bit two weeks ago, about Cain's issue was really a heart issue. It says that the Lord saw that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil. Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. First Chronicles 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. And a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Revelation 2, 23. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So I know that Michael spent some time on this, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But I simply want us to recognize that one of the things that we see revealed through God's judgment of the world via the flood is his omniscience. He wasn't surprised. You know, when we, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. It wasn't like God was just like walking along and all of a sudden you know, casts a little glance down at earth and goes, Oh my gosh, how did they get so sinful? When did that happen? No. This had been building. It had been happening. God knows. It wasn't a surprise to him. But he's long-suffering and he's patient. Third thing, third point, 
is that we see the total depravity of mankind. We see, we see the total depravity of mankind in this account of God judging the world via the flood. Again, Michael spent some time here, so I won't belabor this, but verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All the time, all the time, our thoughts, our behavior, our actions, everything about mankind prior to the flood was evil in verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Titus Chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Remember, this is New Testament. This is post-flood. This is post-God starting over. And it's still true. It's still true of our unsaved, unregenerate hearts prior to Christ Jesus. This is how we behave. This is our default. Romans 1, if you'll permit me to read this for a moment. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do not do what they ought to do, um, and they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They, are in, they invent ways of doing evil. Now think about that. We invent ways of doing evil. I mean, not only does it just come natural to us to do evil, we invent new ways to do evil. We see that in our culture today, don't we? They disobey their parents... They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So our culture today can literally know right and wrong and still choose to do the wrong thing. Our culture today can still sometimes have a moral compass that guides us as to what is right and what is wrong and we will literally continue down doing what is wrong. Are we so naive and blind to think that God is not prepared to judge the world again? We're looking exactly like Noah's generations. Our fourth point. We see God's sovereignty and forbearance revealed. We see God's sovereignty and his forbearance revealed. Verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out Man, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then if we jump down to verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them and the earth. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. Michael covered this a little bit, I, I think. You know, our children can cause us grief sometimes. Our children can make us sad sometimes. That doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we'd wish we'd never had them. But we get a glimpse into the heart of God and how He feels about the condition of mankind. John and Matt and I have a, a friend, Bert, who has passed. 
But he told us a story one time about traveling over to Israel and he's there in Jerusalem and he's got an uh, Orthodox Jewish tour guide. So he's not a believer. He's Jewish by heritage, Jewish by genealogy, but he's not a believer in Christ Jesus. And so Bert proceeds to tell us that his tour guide takes them up on this hillside and says, this is where Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and this is where it says that Jesus wept. And and the tour guide proceeds to share with this group that the reason Jesus wept was because the city was just so beautiful and he was just marveling at its beauty and its architecture and the accomplishments of man. And of course we know that God himself, God incarnate in flesh, stood there on that precipice looking out over that city and he wept over the sin and the corruption and the depravity of humanity. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. He knew he could bring him back to life, but he wept at what sin has done to his creation. And so we get a glimpse here of the heart of God, and the heart is that God would prefer not to judge He does not revel in this. He does not take joy in this. He's not excited about having to judge the world. This saddens and burdens his heart. The fifth thing that we see with regards to God's judgment and flooding of the world is that his judgment will be swift and thorough. God's judgment will be swift and and thorough. Look at uh, verses 4 through 12 of chapter 7. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Jump down to verse 10. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 11. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Can you imagine what that scene must have looked like? And so we see here for a moment that although it was 120 years in the making, when the flood waters started to come, they came. God said up in verse 4, it's going to be seven days, Noah. Now is the time. Seven days. And the waters came. They came fast and they came swiftly. And that's how God's judgment often appears. Swift and thorough. Matthew 24, verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house, Jesus is speaking, had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now I'm going to ask all of you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Keep your finger in Genesis, of course, but turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 26. Verse 26 to 30. So Jesus is speaking to his friends and he says in verse 26, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. What will? This. That they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying... They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. It was the same 
as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus reminds us that just like it was in Noah's day, people are just going about life, they're merry, they're eating, they're drinking, they're celebrating, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage as though nothing is going on, as though they have no sin whatsoever and no cause for concern. Though this man has been building a boat for 120 years. And then, just like that, like a thief in the knife, night, the floodwaters came. Like a thief in the night, Jesus will return and God will be judging the sin of the world once again. And those that are dancing around today as though they have no sin and as though the weight of their actions and the condition of their heart doesn't matter will be suddenly surprised because it won't be floodwaters, it'll be fire this time. So the flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again judge the world for sin. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope is that, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So Paul writes about this new heavens and this new earth that God will create that gives us hope. And he says that all of creation is groaning as well. All of creation is longing for this time when God will restore and God will establish the new heavens and the new earth. So the second section this morning, the flood foreshadows the gospel when God will redeem the world once again through one man. So I said earlier that Noah was a type of Christ. He was a motif. Um, Abraham was a type of Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness. You might remember from our, our study and our look at the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer, is a really, really amazing picture or motif of Christ. The kinsman redeemer is not Christ himself, but his actions, his behavior, reveals a lot of what Christ came to do and has done for us. So at various points, God has worked through people and men and women to foreshadow and resemble how Jesus would ultimately work in our lives. So as a type of Christ, there's four things I want us to consider. The first is that, like Jesus, Noah was blameless among his generation. Just like Jesus, Noah was blameless among his generation. Um, We saw that in verses uh, 8 through 9 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. That phrase, walked with God, we saw that before in Genesis. Enoch walked with God. Then God took him 
home. Now, it doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. It doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. But compared to his peers and his contemporaries, God saw favor and God, God found Noah to be a righteous man. And look what else. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 16. The animals unto the ark, just as God had commanded him. So you see this obedience by Noah. This striving, this effort, this endeavor to walk as closely with God as possible among a very perverse generation. Philippians tells us that Jesus was obedient in every way, even obedient unto death on a cross. Jesus himself said, I do nothing independently of my own accord. I do only what I hear the Father communicating to me. Noah was obedient when God said, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to send waters, I want you to build an ark, and here's the instructions Here's the blueprint. Here's how I want you to build it. Noah says, okay. He's obedient. The second thing that we see as a motif or an image of Christ, like Jesus, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Like Jesus, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. God didn't record Noah's preaching necessarily in Genesis, but we learn about this in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verses 6 and 7. And without faith it is impossible to please him, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Wow. What do you think about that? That's obedience. Noah is considered a preacher of righteousness. 120 years, you better believe, people came up and asked, what are you doing? For 120 years, he's sharing the news about this flood that's coming, what God has instructed him. And did you notice what it says in verse 7? That he, through building this ark, condemned the world. Now, that's kind of a tricky passage there that we'll hang on for just a second. I was gone all week at this uh, National Corvette Restorer Society, NCRS, with Uncle Gene. He's got a 1964 Corvette, and we take it over there to French Lick, Indiana, and to have it judged at a national level by national judges. And the way it's structured and the way it works is you're not competing against other vehicles. You're competing against yourself. And the goal is to have a vehicle that is as close to the factory as possible, as if it had just been pushed out of the factory for the very first time. What did it look like? What condition was it in? And I'm telling you, they go over these things with a fine-tooth comb. They're looking at bolts. They're looking at valve stems in the direction that they're pointing. They're looking at every single... they got microscopes and mirrors and flashlights. And the important thing to remember that we kept reminding ourselves is that the standard is this. They're giving you the standard which is right here. And it's outlined and it's articulated perfectly in the manual. And they begin to deduct for every aspect in which you fall short of that standard. They are not creating the problems. 
or the imperfections or the falling short. We are. If this is the standard, we know what the situation is and it's our job to meet that, not their job. So if we're frustrated or critical of how they're viewing things, we need to remind ourselves they want us to do well. They've given us all the tools and all the information to do well. And to the degree that we fall short, that is on us. Now I say that to say that when we look at this record of Noah in Hebrews, it says that by building the ark and by being obedient to God, he ended up condemning those who did not believe. It doesn't mean that Noah himself has the ability to condemn those. It means that they were condemning themselves to the degree that they decided not to embrace what Noah was saying. But Noah says, this is what God says, and this is what God is going to do. Anyone who does not embrace that and who rejects that is then, by default, condemning themselves. Jesus said the same about himself in John, John 3.17. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But to the degree that any one person chooses to reject Jesus therefore brings on condemnation to himself or herself. Um, Jim Custer, I heard him say one time, I may get this wrong a little bit, but he said, a man will not miss heaven because he's just a really, really bad sinner. He'll miss heaven because he's an arrogant fool to reject Jesus. Now it is true that our sin is worthy of condemnation. But you could be the worst sinner in the world, accept Jesus and repent and turn from your wicked ways and God will welcome you home. But to the arrogant fool who rejects Jesus, that man will miss heaven for that reason. Not because he's really good at sinning, because he has rejected Jesus. The third thing, as we look at Noah being a foreshadow or a type of Christ in which God will redeem the world through one man. The third thing is that like Jesus, Noah had God establish a covenant with him. Like Jesus, God established a covenant with Noah. Verse, uh, oh, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Chapter 7, verse 18 19. Or not. <laughs> uh, where did I write that down? Mm. Ah, oh, no, wait. Chapter 6, verse 18 19. Sorry. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So God says that I am going to establish my covenant with you, Noah. God is going to preserve Noah and his family and make a covenant with Noah to get him through that flood and to never destroy the earth in that way again. Michael will expound on that a little bit more next week. But we see Noah behaving or operating as a type of Christ in that God makes a covenant with him. We've got many covenants. We did a series Steve Schmeckel led us through a series on covenants. We have the Adamic covenant. We have the Noahic covenant here. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We have a Mosaic covenant. We have a Davidic covenant. We have a covenant with God via the nation of Israel. And ultimately, we have the new covenant through Jesus, where Jesus says, this is my covenant, the new covenant. My blood has been poured out for you. And so Noah looks like a type of Christ. He foreshadows what Christ would do as God makes a covenant with him. And the fourth thing we'll see here is that 
like Jesus, the ark was a vessel of salvation. Um, I'm going to jump back to Hebrews 11, verse 7. I should have kept my finger there. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God says that all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23 of chapter 7. Thus he blotted out every living thing. A more literal translation of that is all existence. Every living thing in the world except for the passengers on the ark were destroyed. The invitation was available to all who would be willing to board. 120 years Anybody could have got on that ark. And then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark because that's going to start in seven days. He warned Noah when the waters would be coming. And this means that people had more than enough opportunities. Now, the last thing I want us to look at is chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And watch this. And the Lord closed it behind him. The Lord closed the door of the boat behind the creatures, behind Noah his wife, his sons, and their wives. And so we see how the ark became the only means and vessel of salvation for anyone in Noah's day. And the same is true of Christ Jesus. Today, Jesus is the only vessel of salvation for people today. And just like we spoke about Two weeks ago, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God shares with us His Holy Spirit and marks us with a seal. God closed the door of the ark and God seals us until the day of judgment, until that day when we will one day see Jesus face to face ourselves and we are made heirs of His kingdom and we will reign with Him for eternity. And that's something that only God can do. Only God shut the door of that ark. Only God seals you for eternity so that your salvation is irrevocable, non-negotiable. Can't forfeit it. Can't get rid of it. We are heirs for eternity. So the flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again judge the world. And the flood foreshadows the gospel because God will once again redeem mankind through one man, Jesus Christ. Now, the last passage that I want to read for us is Second Peter, and then we'll be all done. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three will begin in verse ten. the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. You've heard us share this before. I believe the Ark Encounter in Kentucky even has maybe a display along these lines. But can you imagine what the sounds must have been like outside the Ark as those waters begin to rise? I'm sure it was pretty noisy inside with all the animals. But I bet there was some pounding on the hall of that ark. I bet there was some screaming outside. We're not talking about a small population of people. We're talking about a lot of people and only eight were on the boat. Think about what that judgment represented and think about what it must have sounded like And think about what it must have looked like if God had permitted them to gaze outside during the rain. During the first day or two, what would those waters have looked like? With carnage and life. Lifeless. We get really excited about Jesus returning and coming home to take us home. And that's a great thing. But maybe we should really be thinking about what his return means for those who will face his judgment and are not protected and washed in the blood of Christ. And you say, well, okay. That should motivate us to be sharing the gospel with all whom we come in contact with. And we know it's the Lord's job to save that person. We don't save people, but we can be used by Him to share the good news. And if, if God would permit us to view others through the lens that He sees them as utterly depraved and sinful outside of the blood of Christ Jesus, then that might motivate us a little bit more because it's not going to be a pretty scene when God's judgment and wrath comes again. It will be swift and it will be thorough and there will be anguish. But praise be to God that He has penetrated our hearts and He has called us into a saving relationship with His Son. That He knew us before the foundations of the earth. He formed us in the womb and when we heard the gift of of salvation, we accepted it. And that he worked in our hearts so that we could confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Amen.